All right. Well, it's good to be back, and it's good to be in Luke 19 uh, together. So we're going to begin at verse 11 in just a in just a second. So last week we talked about Zacchaeus, uh, the, the wee little man he was, the climbing in the tree and all that stuff. Um, we saw most importantly was not his size and his stature, but we saw his sin. We saw the the greatness of God and salvation over such a sinner like Zacchaeus. In fact, Jesus says, truly salvation has come to his house today. Quite an important moment uh, in in the passage when when Jesus said that. But also in verse 10, we saw how Jesus told us the purpose of his mission, to seek and to save the lost, right? I've come to seek and to save the lost. And here's an example that has been greatly set before you as, as Zacchaeus. All right, it's what he's, what he's come to do. So last week's amazing story of God's saving grace, right? Someone who to the uttermost was lost can be saved, right? We, we saw the, the testimony of that, how just meeting Jesus changed Zacchaeus and changed his life completely. And we saw the, the outcome of that changed uh, life. We also saw that in the, the context of the, the Gospel of Luke, that where we have this located, of course, he's on his way to Jerusalem, but, but this is almost like an apex of his ministry, of, of his one-on-one ministry to people in proclaiming his mission, that, that, we have, that I have come to seek and to save the lost, and boom, here's Zacchaeus, the, the, the least qualified to be a part of the kingdom of God. Salvation has come to his house today. Right? So, so Luke is setting for us something very important that's about to take place, and of course we know is about to take place, is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We'll talk about that um, next week, and we know what happens the week after that. Now, this week's passage, as they are about to get to Jerusalem from Jericho, Jesus gives us the parable of the ten minas, M-I-N-A-S, the ten minas. Um, it's a parallel to Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. So if you see that uh, in, in Matthew 25, if you want to look uh, later, virtually the same story, the same parable that, that Jesus uh, tells, but I think they're to be understood differently. Uh, they run parallel together, but they're meant to be understood differently with different meanings, and I think they've been told at different times as well uh, because of Jesus' reaction in, in certain ways. And if you go back and read the two, you'll be able to see that. Now, before we read the text, uh, I just want us to understand right after the bat what, why Luke wants us to see this text. And, or actually, he, he's actually telling us why Jesus gave this parable, right? I love that. I love it when the, the, the authors of the, of, the, of the text helps us out by interpreting for us, here's why Jesus said what he said. And of course, we know this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, in, in Luke for us to understand because maybe we would have not have understood uh, what was really going on. Now, Jesus was very popular in his ministry at the, at the time. I don't know if it was like the apex of his popularity because he started saying some things toward the end of his uh, earthly ministry that people started kind of turning away, but he was still very popular. Of course, people are still coming to him. People are coming to him to be healed. Blind Bartimaeus is yelling out, son of David, have mercy on me, kind of thing uh, is, is what's happening. The, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and stuff like that at the, toward the end of the ministry. But So his popularity has, has, is significantly, uh, significantly high. And in that popularity, there's, a, there's been this ongoing excitement of Jesus' ministry. And in that excitement, there's been this growing expectation that this is the Messiah. That, that this is the Messiah. And, and if this is the Messiah, then, then the kingdom is imminent. I mean, it's like, it's like around the block. All we got to do is get to Jerusalem. We're, we're getting closer and closer. And, and that excitement, that anticipation, it's almost kind of like they, they know it's almost Christmas morning. I mean, you, you know that anticipation, that, that, that excitement to, to, to that day. And, and this was them. They were excited. We get to get to Jerusalem. The kingdom is almost 
here. Right? So we talked about the, the common Jewish expectation was that when the Messiah would come, he would come rolling the town with all of his tanks and all of his soldiers, and he would obliterate the Romans. And he would judge the, the sinners and the traitors and, and then reestablish uh, Israel in its rightful place, as it was in the Old Testament. Now, were they wrong completely and entirely? No. Was, is Jesus the Messiah? Yeah, Absolutely. But they were wrong in the sense of what they thought was going to take place when it should have taken place, according to them. And they had, you know, they had evidence of these things. People were being saved, healings and miracles. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom. He talked about how the kingdom has come. So why not let it come in Jerusalem? But that wasn't the plan. So we're, what we see here, again, is that blindness and ignorance and lack of understanding that the disciples had and other followers had, just like we saw back in Luke 18, is continuing. Right? They, this is what's continuing. If you look at verse 11, you'll see what I'm saying. Because he tells the parable, because they're near Jerusalem, because they think that the appearance of God is imminent. So, there's the context. There's, and, and there's the purpose of this whole parable. So, let's, let's read it together, starting in verse 11, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, right, about Zacchaeus, about the teaching, and Luke 18, as they heard these things, he proceeded, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they opposed, they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. So that's what I was talking about earlier, right? Where they, they're expecting it to come like right then. Jesus comes, boom, it's here. It's complete. Verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his, but his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given money and called, and, and to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Verse 16. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you should have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You, you take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, interject moron. You wicked servant. You, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why did you not put the money in the bank? And at my coming, I, would, I might have collected with interest. Verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that ever to everyone who has, more will be given. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But, but as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Kind of ends a little rough there, doesn't it? Especially after some of the things we've been reading lately, especially with Zacchaeus. So let's, let's break it down. There's a, there's a lot going on in this, uh, in this parable. Let's, let's break it down. Now, in, in verses 12 through 14... Jesus is setting us a story of, of a nobleman um, who is supposed to become a king, but he has to go far away to become this king, 
And as he's gone, he has these servants, and he gives them all some money to be stewards over while he's gone. Um, while he's gone, right? That's their job. Um, but also it tells us that, uh, that this nobleman has, he has some haters. And, and these haters are going to do whatever it takes to stop this guy from becoming king. Um, now, this is an interesting uh, story. It makes sense to us. But for those hearers uh, that, that, um, in that day, this was actually kind of a uh, made-from-real-life TV show kind of thing that Jesus was doing. Um, because this was a story that actually kind of took place uh, in, in history. And let me, let me explain it to you. About, about 30 years earlier, so um, right at the time when Jesus was born, or actually right after the time Jesus was born, there was Herod the Great. Y'all remember Herod, Herod, the, Herod the Great. And before he had died, he split his little mini kingdom empire that he was over, that the Romans gave him control over, and, uh, uh, among his sons, Arch- Archelaus, uh, Philip and Antipas. So you remember Antipas, Jesus, will go see him in a few weeks as we get, uh, as we get there in, in Luke. Now, Archelaus was the oldest, so he was given Judea and Samaria, right? And Judea is where Jerusalem is, this is Jericho. I mean, this is kind of his, his region where Jesus is at right now. Now, when, when Herod the, died, Archelaus took, took his place as kind of being that preeminent of the, of the three, but yet he still had his, uh, his, just his own share of Judea and in, in, in Samaria. But what Archelaus wanted, he wanted the same title that his dad had. His dad had the title king, which was very rare in the Roman Empire, because Caesar is king, right? You know, he's, he's Rex, if you know Latin. Uh, he's in charge. He's the head honcho. And so they very selectively gave that title king, but he wanted king. So he gathered up a group of, of his people together, uh, his, this little entourage, including some family members, and he set off to Rome to petition before Caesar to be king, right? So you see the story where Jesus's, uh, where, where where, uh, Jesus's uh, story makes, uh, makes sense. So he went off to Rome, but a long story short, when he got there and he found out that there were going to be opponents to him, there were going to be people that were going to be against him, uh, which also included his own family, some of his own family stood before Caesar and, and said, hey, you don't want to make this maniac uh, king. You don't want to make him, make him king. Uh, Fifty people from, from Judea and Samaria, that was Jews and Samaritans, went together to petition before uh, Caesar to not make this guy king, right? And then 8,000 Jews who were expatriates in Rome showed up that day to petition before Caesar to not make this guy king. Now, long story short, again, uh, uh, Caesar didn't make him king, didn't give him that title. He gave him uh, a different title called Anthonarch, uh, uh, is what it's called, uh, and it's actually all the actions just governor. So he just kind of made him uh, uh, governor. Uh, and so one of the reasons why these people went against Archelaus was because he was a pretty sick individual, kind of like his father. Uh, and one of the things was, is there was a, a riot that started taking place in, in the temple, and he sent the army, in, and they killed over 3,000 people in one day. Uh, pretty, and then they took the bodies and threw them in the temple. Harsh, right? Um, and so they didn't want him to be their, be their king. Uh, of course, they remembered her, his dad, uh, 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 Herod the Great, who killed the babies in Jerusalem. So you'll remember, remember that story as well. So this storyline is not far off from what Jesus is saying. This is kind of like right out of, right out of the headlines 30 years, uh, 30 years earlier. So in the same way, though, uh, we see Jesus using this story to explain something better and greater, a greater king and a greater uh, kingdom, right? And a greater king and a greater kingdom because Jesus was going to take an extended trip to receive his kingdom. And Jesus was not only going to be opposed in Jerusalem, but he would be opposed throughout the ages, wouldn't he? He would have haters throughout the, the ages. And, and then after an extended absence, Jesus will return. And he will bring his kingdom in. And he will, he will judge those who resisted his rule. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't anything like the egomaniac Archelaus. But it is certainly about the true king, the true king who goes away and who rules in holiness and righteousness and and will return to receive his kingdom. So that's what this parable 
is, is teaching us. So let's, let's unpack the, the parable a little bit more. Now, before the nobleman goes away to receive his kingdom, verse 12, he calls ten servants to himself, right? Ten, ten of his servants to him, and he gives them all a, a, an eat. They give each of them a, a, a mina, and, and mina is roughly worth three months of, of, of wages. Um, and he tells them to do something with that three months wage, and that is to engage in business until I come. So he wants them to take that money and invest it and put it to work in any way possible to make him money. He wants them to make money on, on his behalf. So a simple task, right, a simple task. All these servants have to do is be obedient, they have to be faithful, and they have to be good stewards with what the, uh, with what the, the nobleman has given him. Now, uh, again, we've been told in verse 14 that this nobleman has enemies. He has enemies, and these, are, these aren't just people who don't like him, but they are actively working against him. They're actively working against his authority to subvert his kingship, right? They, they, they want to reject his rule. They are sending a delegation, just like we saw in the, the story with Archelaus, to, to uh, subvert his rule and his authority. Now, between verse 14 and verse 15, we're meant to understand that there is a large gap of time between those two verses. Because the king travels in a faraway country. He travels in a faraway country. You see that earlier. There's a great, so there's a great length of time there. But the expectation for the servants is that the master will return. That the master will come back. The nobleman will come back. And when he does come back, he's going to take account for the mina that he gave. He gave his servants and will ask what they have done with it. For, so for them to be good stewards. So verse 15, just as he said, after the long length of time and travel, the king comes back to receive his kingdom. And he calls his servants to, to take account. The first guy comes with with the mina given, he says, here's your, your, your mina, and, and here's also ten more. That's a thousand percent return. That's a pretty good return, right? Like, those are kind of the returns that we would like to get, we would like to see, right? But if anyone offers you that, don't take it, because it's probably not real. In fact, it's not. It's called, that's called the lottery, which is not real, right? And the second guy comes with his mina, and he comes with five more. So there's a 500% return. So here's the, the nobleman, and he's, he's pleased. He's, he's so grateful. He sees in these first two guys faithfulness and trustworthiness, even amidst and amongst enemies, in a land full of enemies, his enemies. And, and what he does is he, he rewards them lavishly, doesn't he? You see that in verse 17 and 19. What does he do? He puts them in charge of cities, multiple cities. Now, now a, a, a mina, like I said, was, was three months' wage, and that, does, that is a lot of money. To any of us giving us three months' wage, that's, that's a lot of money. We would be thankful to re receive that, but it's nothing in comparison to being in control or authority over ten cities. So what is this saying? There's a lavishness of the king upon those who are, who are faithful those who were loyal to him, those who were trustworthy to him. But then we get to this other servant, and he had a different plan. I'm not going to invest it. I'm just going to hide it in a handkerchief. I don't know. Does anybody hide anything in handkerchiefs? I guess, it, I don't know. They, usually, they, and they stick it under your mattress or something. Uh, that's what he did. He took the mina, and he made no investment at all. He did nothing. He simply stashed it away, he hid it, he protected it, thinking that that was the best thing to do to preserve himself. Now, maybe seemed like a good strategy to, to him, but that's not what he was told to do. He didn't say, protect this with, with everything you have, with all that you are, protect it. No, the uh, master told him to engage in business. And then what's worse is, is he defends himself by insulting the king. He insults the king. He blames shifts, and he, he begins to play the victim. He plays the victim that I'm the one who, uh, who's, who's really been wronged. I should have never been given the mina in the first place. 
Nothing in this story, however, tells us that there's any truth to the fears that he says about the king. There's nothing true that he, in this whole story to say that this king is, is harsh. In fact, what seems to be more true than, than, than that was that this servant was more influenced by the enemies and more worried about what the enemies would think than what the king thought or what the king told him to do. And the, the truth about the king seemed to be the exact opposite. I mean, think about this guy. In, in a land of enemies, he remarkably trusts these ten servants with his money. And then when he comes back, he lavishes the first two with unbelievable amount of riches that only a king could bestow. But the king responds. He responds back to this, to this guy, and he doesn't really come out and defend himself either. He basically just turns the servant's poor logic on him, saying, if, if you really believe what you said about me, that, that if I'm that severe, if I'm that unfair, and if I'm that harsh, then, then why would you think hiding the mina and doing nothing with it was the right way to go? In fact, that's probably the, the very worst thing that you could have done. At the very least, you could have just put it in the bank and earned that .001%. Is that what bank rates are? I, Pretty sure it is. Maybe zero one. So he takes the minor from this first guy and he gave it to the guy in, with the 10. And this is what's crazy the story. Verse 25. People around him had the audacity to say, Lord, he has 10 minors. That, let me put it in our vernacular. That's not fair. That's not equal. That's not, that's not just. Give it to someone else who has nothing. That's why verses 26 and 27 for our culture are very hard to hear. Sometimes even for our, our modern minds are hard to hear because, because what he's saying in verse 26 is that it doesn't matter who's poor or who's rich. It doesn't matter who, who, who are the haves and have-nots. The king will reward those who are faithful. That's what it's about. And if they're the ones who already have more, then God bless them. Let them have more. And then the parable ends, surprisingly, not with the story of this other seven servants, but, but with judgment. Harsh, hard judgment upon his enemies. Those who have set themselves up against the king to slaughter them before them. Now, what does this all mean? What, is, what does all this mean for us? Well, remember what Luke has told us and why Jesus told this parable. We may not this morning have an over-realized eschatology. We may not necessarily banking every bit of our life thinking Jesus is coming back tomorrow so we don't go to work. We're not doing all those things that, that are kind of foolish. But we may not have that. But, but I think there's encouragement in this parable. And there's some very good lessons for the church in waiting. The church that's between verses 14 and 15. The church that is in, in waiting. The church that has been entrusted by our returning king with an unbelievable investment of the gospel. A church that has been given the gospel to be, to be stewards over. A church that has been given new life and transformation to invest for the kingdom of God. This is a call to mission. It's a call to purpose. It's a, it's a call to an examination of our hearts. It's a call to examination of our, of our minds and our churches. It's a warning. It is a strong warning to lazy, fearful Christians who have turned and hide the things that Jesus has given them to invest and put the business. And it's a very strong warning to those who have set themselves as an enemy against our king. So let me give you three things for us this morning on what I think this means for us and how we can be encouraged and how we can take lessons uh, from here as well as adhere to the warnings. Number one, 
Number one, rejection is normal. Rejection is normal. Rejection is a lesson that none of us want to learn. It's a lesson that none of us love going through it when we're going through it. We, we don't want to even see it if there's the potential of rejection. That's why we don't do certain things sometimes, because we feel like we would be rejected. We don't like that. It's a hard experience, but it is a part of life. It's a part of life. We're going to be rejected. Lots of times, you're, you're not going to get the job that you thought that would be perfect for you. You might not get the friendship with that person that you don't just seemed right in the beginning. Or if you were like me in high school and in college, you, may, you might not ever get that date that you really wanted. Rejection is hard. I'll, I have to say, eventually I did. Rejection is hard, but it is such a valuable lesson in life. So I think one of the greatest lessons that Jesus is showing us here in this passage is that if you are one of the followers of Jesus, that if you are a follower of Jesus and you're living now in the already but not yet, right, between the verse 14 and 15, that rejection is normal. So we should anticipate it. We should bank on it. And also we should endure in it. Look again at verse 14 with me. He says, it says, but his citizens, meaning this is the nobleman, right? This is the nobleman. But his citizens hated him and sent the delegation after, after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. So in this story, the, if you haven't caught it yet, I think by here, the nobleman slash king is Jesus, right? So, so that's the allegory. This is Jesus. So here's Jesus in the story being rejected and hated by his own people. I come and they knew me not. Reject and they, they actively reject him. They actively reject him with, with their words. We don't want this man to reign over us. It's really going to come to fruition for us in a couple weeks or months as we get through Luke. They hated him. They rejected him, and they, they worked actively against him. But just like those who did to Archelaus, they were going to do to Jesus. And it's interesting, too, because right now the crowd, the crowd around Jesus, they're, they're with him. They're, they're behind him. They're, they're welcoming him. They're supporting him. And next week, we're going to see how they're going to welcome him into Jerusalem with overwhelming praise and thanksgiving. But by the end of the week, the same crowd will be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. The rejection of God and Jesus is not something new. This is something that, that mankind has been doing since Genesis chapter 3. It's, it's what the fall was all about. We don't need you, king. We don't need you, God. We are our own authority. We can make up our own minds. We can lead our own life. We don't need you. And so throughout the whole entire Bible, there's this constant tension between the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There's this constant tension between the two. So this isn't new. And this isn't new to us even in our own age today, brothers and sisters. This isn't something that we, even our own selves, are not immune to. There are still enemies of the king. There are people who hate him. And they are actively working to subvert the king and his rule. By the way, whether they know it or not. So I guess that would be actively and passively. They're working to destroy the church. They're working to delegitimize the church, delegitimize Christianity, delegitimize Christians. Now, doesn't that just put things in context for us? Though? This isn't new. The things that we're facing today aren't things new. 
what's shameful and wicked now is something now that we are told that we are to celebrate and we are to, or to enjoy. Wickedness is enjoyed. It's on display all, all around us. And these are all things of rejecting the king, rejecting what God has created good and rights. It's a rejection of the, the sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus Christ in all the millions of its ways, from false religion to politics, wickedness, injustice, and oppression, persecution, heresy, the list can go on and on. Rejection is normal. This rejection is normal. And Jesus is saying to his disciples then, he's saying, expect me to be rejected. Don't expect that they're going to, that, that you're going to be leading a victory parade. Don't expect that. Expect me to be rejected. And so here's the point. Yes, rejection is normal, but isn't it kind of Jesus to frame the story in this way so that we as his followers would understand that this is true, that this is normal, steady as she goes. Put the sails up, keep plowing through. That's what he's telling us, that this is, this is normal. And what's unfortunate is that there's so many Christians out there that kind of want to work against this normalcy that Jesus is telling us. They, they think that Christians should be leading the victory parades even now. That's just not the truth. Yes, we do enjoy victory. We enjoy the victory that we have in Christ now, but our victory in Christ now is in here. It's not in parades in the streets with no problems. So what we need then is we need endurance. We need endurance to be able to, to weather this rejection because we're living in the already but not yet. And this already but not yet has proved itself to not be over quickly. It's not going to end quickly. We're roughly already two years, 2,000 years into this thing since Jesus ascended into heaven. That, that's a long time, and it may be much longer. It may be much longer. So we're to brace ourselves because it's going to be a long wait. We brace ourselves. And, and you know, a majority of the New Testament is really uh, is, is, is encouraging the church followers of Jesus to brace themselves for that, uh, for this long race, that it's going to be long. In fact, Paul even says it that way. He says, he says be prepared for this long race that's set before you to, to be able to endure it because it's not a, a quick race. It's not a 50-yard dash. It's not a 100-yard dash. It's not even a mile if you think it's a mile. It's not. It's a marathon, 26.2 miles. It's a triathlon, 26.2-mile run, and then you jump in the pool and you swim 2.4 miles, and then you hop on a bike after that and go a 100-mile bike ride. That is what the Christian life is about. That is what this we are to be. And if we're going to survive, then we need to have endurance. The Christian life is hard. And it's long. And it may not have been what you have anticipated. Sanctification and holiness has turned out to be a whole lot harder than you may have ever thought. Watching friends who you cared about, who used to believe in the truth, turn away from you and Jesus to embrace the world is hard. Watching the lives of so many fall apart, experiencing rejection yourself by those who you thought were your friends, people who you thought were even brothers and sisters in Christ, people who called themselves Christians, churches that you were a part of, rejecting you. This is a long, hard race. And when Jesus is telling us that rejection is normal, he is encouraging us to have endurance. Because we're not called to the victory parade. We're called to fight. We're called to struggle. We're called to, to, to wrestle. We're called to suffer. We're called to come and die. 
to take up our cross and, and, and follow him. And you see, when he tells us this truth, we are to, then, then our expectations will become set proper. And when they're set proper, then we're ready to endure and we're ready to weather the inevitable storms of the fallen world. And we'll fight the good fight, as Paul did. We'll fight the good fight, and we'll fight the good fight together. His servants, as the church. We're reminded by Romans 5, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And you know what that means? The victory prayed may not be now, but it's coming. The victory prayed is coming. It's not here, but it's coming. So that's number one. That's number one. Rejection is normal, so endure. Number two, invest your life. Invest your life. We are to invest our lives. Again, in the story, the, the, the servants, the stewards, that's us. Those are, those are Christians. And, and we have been invested in by God in, this, in a new life. We've been given new life. and We've been given the gospel. There's the, that's the mina. We've been given the mina of the, of the gospel and, and, and new life. And he's telling you to take this now new transformed life in the, in the gospel and then invest it. Then invest it. Engage in business. Engage in business. So this is not just defensive. This is us going on the offensive. We're going on the offensive with the gospel and with our lives. If, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have been given the gospel. And you've been called to engage in the business of the gospel, which means every aspect of your life is then to be leveraged for the work of the gospel in every part. In every part. Being good stewards with our lives. The place where we live, where we, where we work, however we do our weekends, our abilities, our education, our money, our health, our family, our interactions with people who do not believe in Jesus, your love for one another in church, your suffering. Our whole life is to be given as stewards, as an investment to reinvest on behalf of our King. Too many Christians believe that all those things that I just mentioned before, life, family, money, church, they think that they're given by God to them for their own purpose. That it's just for them to enjoy. And so that the glory then just kind of terminates on them. But God has given us those things. God has given us our lives to to live as stewards, investing our whole life for him and for the gospel. Other Christians have then adopted the idea of the third servant. The third servant approach where they'll just hide. They'll, they'll hide. They'll, they'll, they'll hide with, with the gospel. They'll, they'll lazily, foolishly, fearfully failing to put to use what God has intended to go out and go forth and for us to engage in. So, so ask yourself this. What am I living for? What do I really care about? What is my life really about? Those are some pretty honest questions. Those are pretty honest questions, maybe even hard to answer. But what would your answers be? Would you, would you get an accurate answer of, of what the total sum of your life would be? Would you get an idea of, of where the source of your satisfaction is and what you're really living for? Now, it's interesting about asking questions like this, particularly, particularly to more of a, of a Christian crowd. I, you, we all know what the answer should be, right? 
So this isn't a drive-by guilting. We all know what the answers should be, but honestly ask yourself those questions. What am I really living for? What is my life really for? I hope that you will find that it is more. And if not, then this morning could be the morning that you could help move in that direction of moving your life more for the glory of God. And to pray through those things. You know, the next time that you're, you're at a, a, a Georgia Southern game, so if you go to the game next week, or if you ever go to a, a, a baseball game, or if you're at the beach, or if you're at Splash, or even if you just go to the mall or, or Walmart, if you can handle it, um, look around and you'll see, you'll see hundreds of people shopping. You'll see thousands of people cheering at the game or getting angry at the game, whatever it may be. You'll see hundreds of people playing and swimming, enjoying each other's company at the beach or splashing the borough, whatever it may be. And when you see them, you need to understand that, that there's a, a high percentage of them are not like you. And, and here's what I mean. I don't mean that because we're like, oh, we're better. Because where do they get their satisfaction? Where are they finding their meaning? Where are they finding their, their source of life? And in those places, are that, is that where we are to find the source of life? All those others will have different goals and different purposes. But we have been called to be different. We've been called to be different, that our lives are to be for the king. That our whole lives are to be for the king. The king, to, to spread the message of the glorious gospel, to be in, in, in the same uh, mission that our king is on and had been on. So we invest everything for him. Lastly, I want to point out, and this is a good point, that the king will return. That the king will return. That's what most of the parable right there kind of shows us, right? What happens after that. It's real important that we saw between verse 14 and 15. But we see very clearly in verse 15 that the king comes back. But until then, again, we're called to endure. We're called to be faithful stewards in all that we've been given with all of our lives. But we do all that remembering that the king will return. Verse 15 shows us that reality. Now, the, this point it should be very encouraging. That's why we got an amen in that. It should be very encouraging to us because especially when we're enduring over such a long period of time, and maybe even in, enduring in a particular hard time of our, of, of our lives. Uh, let me show you. When, when the king returns, he's going to bring a reckoning and accounting to his servants for their faithfulness, and then he'll bring about judgment to his enemies. But, but notice when he brings accounting to his servants. Uh, we see there is a, uh, this is very interesting, we kind of highlighted a little bit when we unpacked the, the parable together with the first two servants. We see that there is a disproportionate generosity of God to those who steward well and invest their lives by grace in the gospel. And they hear, well done, good servants. So, so first, that there's this disproportionate generosity of God, right? We, we kind of talked about that, right? So they were given that one mina, which really wasn't a lot of money, right? It is, but it's not enough to retire on. And, and then this guy invested it in such a way where it was enough to retire on, right? And, and gives it back to the king, and then the king gives them, gives him 10 cities. Now, now we kind of talked about that. Right? Gives them the reward of, of ten or even the other guy, five cities. So when you compare the mina, insignificant compared to what? The cities. So what is, what is Jesus highlighting here to us? That God's reward to his faithful servants is completely disproportionate to what we have been called to sacrifice. And what we've been called to give up. And we're meant to see that disproportion. Again, we kind of saw a little bit of this in, in chapter 18. We're meant to see this because the, 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 this, the disposition or disproportion of, of, of this is we're meant to see God's love 
in his favor for his people. His inheritance is far greater than we can ever imagine. And it's utterly disproportionate to the business that he has called us to do. It's utterly disproportionate. We would be far greater rewarded than what we will ever sacrifice. I love this. God's economy is you don't get back what you put into it. You get cities. <laughs> you get cities. You're not going to get the investment from a savings bond kind of interest. You get cities. You get nations. And then he proves this over with the third servant. He proves this over with the with the third servant who does nothing with the mina, right? Who blames the king for being harsh, and, and, and the king points out the obvious once again that uh, you should have just invest the thing uh, in, instead of, of hiding it. Um, and, and this is just a side point. Um, you, you know what the king is doing here. He's pointing the, out the hypocrisy in this guy. Uh, he really doesn't believe the theology of the king um, that he says he believes. Because again, if he believed that he was harsh, he would have invested it. He would have at least stuck it in, in the bank. And that's, that's a whole other sermon uh, for us when we do not uh, believe the theology, our own theology, and what that leads us to, to do. Uh, and so this third guy, we're, we're, we're meant to see in, in this third guy, uh, especially those who are tempted to accuse God of being harsh and unfair, <clears throat> and, and that really the, the truth is that God is far more generous in, in the way that he rewards far more generous. And so if we're tempted to believe that God's being harsh and God's being severe and he's, he's going to reap where he has not sown, then, then we, we look at this text and say, no, God is far more giving and far more rewarding than what I may think or what I may believe in this particular moment. And, and you may go through this life and you may experience rejection and, and disappointment and betrayal and hurt and, and, and sacrifice it all and give everything. Read the story of so many Christians that have gone before us and see what they have lost and lost and lost and lost for the gospel's sake. All believing that the reward was going to be rich in heaven and not in this earth. Their victory prayed was not on this earth but in heaven. Because there is a reward that we can't even comprehend that's coming. Doesn't then that reward then, doesn't that make all the difference in how we live now? Because this truth uh, allows you not to be so turned in ourself or in yourself about what you haven't gotten or, or what you have lost here because you know that the Lord is going to take care of you. And what does that do? That, that then frees us up to, to turn outward, to, to turn outward instead of, being, instead of being inward and all tied up about, about ourselves and, again, about what we haven't been given. That frees us up to give and to serve and to forgive and, and go because, because our reward is not what's in this life, but our reward is God himself. And we, we will receive the fullness of that reward when our king returns. And as I said, the king will return. How, how do you live your life fully invested in the gospel for the glory of God and others? Because our reward is not here, our victory parade is not here, but our reward is in him. And someday, if we are faithful, we will hear, well done, servant. Here's your reward. And we will reign with him. So let's bring it all together. We can be assured first that rejection is normal. And second, again, just as important and something we need to be thinking now is how are we investing our lives? How are we investing our, our life in the gospel and in others in every way possible? And, and lastly, know that our king will return. And he's going to give an account. He's going to ask for us to give an account of what we have done with the mina that he has given to each and every one of us. The question is, is will he lavish on you reward? Or will you be treated as the servant, the third servant? 
But there's also judgment. There's also judgment on his enemies when he returns. One question that I could not get away from from this passage is what happened to the other seven? What happened to them? There was ten. What happened to those guys? Did they just get off scot-free? No. They didn't get off scot-free. What happened? How did they do? How did they invest the mina? How much did they bring back? Or how much did they not bring back? Did someone actually put it in the bank? Did someone hide it in their pillow or put it in their handkerchief like the other guy did? Maybe the seven are not mentioned because maybe we're the seven. Maybe you are one of, one of the seven. So how are you going to answer the question when verse 15 takes place? When verse 15 takes place and you stand before the king, how will you respond when he asks, how have you gained doing my business? We know what we all want to hear. We all want to hear, well done, good servant. And here is your reward. But that's not yet. How is your work now? Because your work now is not done. Our work here now is not done. Your investing in this life is not done now. We all have a role to play in the way that the Lord has us to be. And, and I don't mean this harshly, but I mean this as encouraging as possible. Let's not be lazy in this. Let's not be fearful in this. Let's not be inept in this, trusting the enemies of the king to be fearful and to lay back and to hide and to shrink. But let's keep going. Let's keep reinvesting in each other. And when we lose, we keep going. We keep reinvesting in each other. We keep repenting. We keep pursuing holiness and Christ-likeness. We keep investing our lives in others who to everyone else looks like a risk. We invest in them. Let's keep being faithful in the ways that the enemies of the king would probably ridicule you of and persecute you for. Let's be faithful. Let's pray. Father, help us in these truths and in these things as we evaluate our hearts this morning and the response. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.